0: And he came here to study at uh, Greenville Seminary, and he is in the process of getting his masters there and studying God's word. And so as a part of that process, the Greenville Seminary asked local churches if they could host students to be student interns. And so Steve has been serving as our student intern, exploring what God might have for him in the future and exploring what gifts there might be. And so he serves in in various areas in the church, Um, He served with youth, he served in teaching some classes, um, all while he is taking a very full load in a foreign language. And um, that was a little bit of a joke, sorry. Uh, And he, while taking a foreign language, um, he is in in the midst of serving us uh, part-time as a student intern, primarily during the summer times, and then in the winter, typically in his breaks, uh, he serves us then as well. Um, Steve became a believer back in 2001 after a crisis period in his life. And if you haven't gotten to hear Steve's story, I would really encourage you to draw him out and ask him, Hey, tell me a little bit about what Matt was talking about. How did you become a believer? Um, It is an amazing testimony of how God just rescued him and brought him to himself. And I'm really excited because Steve has a passion for sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that that changed his life. And one of the things that Steve does as well is on Friday nights, typically almost every Friday night, he'll go downtown Greenville and he proclaims the gospel. And we're excited. This is his very first foray in teaching on a Sunday morning. And so we are excited to welcome him. So Steve, come on up. And we're going to welcome Steve, if you will. And Steve gets to preach to us about the kingdom of heaven. So why don't we pray together for him really quickly, and then I'll let him take us into God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all the many gifts that you've given this body. Thank you that you have brought Steve across the oceans here to us. God, thank you that he is a gift to our body. I pray that you would empower him by your Holy Spirit... I pray that you would give us all grace to hear your word as he speaks, that you would all help us all pay attention, Lord, and engage with you, God. God, thank you that you promised to bless your word, Lord. I pray that you would bless Steve as he speaks. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Keep talking. All right, nice. So last week, um, Aaron had the privilege of having a translator up here because we had a team from Brazil. And being from Brazil, a lot of them only spoke Portuguese. So Aaron had a Portuguese translator up here. Now, being from New Zealand, I speak a different form of English. As such, I'm going to ask my wife to come up, and um, she's going to come and translate for me, so Laura, do you want to come up? we have got a mic down here. Oh, it's gone. No? All right. Um, okay, no loss. Man and Aaron did ask me to, to write a manuscript, and I do have words set to U.S. English, so if you can't understand anything I say this morning, um, if you read through the manuscript, you might be able to pick it up there. This morning we're going to look at a small, or two small little parables that Jesus gives his disciples. And so if you guys would like to turn with me to Matthew 13, and we're going to look at um, from 44 to 46, and that is the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great value. Right. just before I start though. Again, let's pray. Father, we just praise you and thank you so much that you, from the foundation of creation, have established your kingdom, that your purpose, that you have revealed to us through your special revelation, through your communication to us, through the various men and prophets that you used in revealing who you are, who we are, and our need for salvation, that you Set your heart and your grace first with your call through your covenant of redemption, through the setting and planning of sending your son to come and die on a cross, to pay for sin, to redeem a people to yourself, and that the reason why we're here this morning gathered to worship and hear your word is because of that and because of you. So we praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus. And as we look through these um, three small verses, may you empower, or through the work of your Holy Spirit, sorry, enlighten our minds, in our hearts, and really equip and fire us up to move forward as Christians, Christians who are willing to lay down our own lives for the sake of you and your kingdom. Amen. Okay, I've just preached my sermon. Uh, We're going to finish now, so. No. Again, we're looking at two small little parables um, that Jesus gave his disciples. So let's read them together. This is verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who upon finding that one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. I propose that these two verses, uh, three verses can be summarized in this one sentence. And that is that all is worthless compared to the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven. Say that again, that all, everything is worthless compared to the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven. Last year was quite an exciting time for me. Um, The Rugby World Cup was on and New Zealand was defending... Uh, as Sorry, they were the, the defenders, of the world champs of the previous World Cup. If you know anything of rugby, you might have heard the term, the All Blacks. That's the name of the New Zealand rugby team. They have been seen historically as one of the greatest rugby teams ever, and possibly one of the greatest sports teams ever. Of course, New Zealand has a curse. Every time it comes down to a crunch, battle within the World Cup, the All Blacks lose. So this year, uh, sorry, last year, all of New Zealand was focused on this World Cup. We had finally won one after 20 odd years, and now were we going to be the first team to defend it? Well, we did. There was mass celebration, and for a lot of people, it was one of the most enjoyable aspects of the World Cup. However. There was something that happened at the end of the final that also brought attention to the Rugby World Cup, and something that if you knew, again, anything about rugby or watched the World Cup, you would have been in awe about this um, small little event that took place. So at the end of the Rugby World Cup final, Australia and New Zealand uh, have their award ceremony. Everything is done on the field. They're in Twickenham. Thousands upon thousands of people are watching this ceremony. No one has left their seats. No one has gone. Everyone is still buzzed and hyped over the Rugby World Cup final. After the award ceremony, both teams do a lap of honour. They gather together with um, the teams that, the players that actually played, the coaching staff. Uh, the substitutes, everyone who's involved with that team, comes on the field, and they walk around the stadium, slowly, just giving thanks to the crowd who have been there, and uh, for their support. Well, they come to this one point in the um, in the stadium, where out of nowhere, a little kid by the name of Charles Lane jumps the fence and runs onto the field. Now, if any of you guys have been to a sports game, I'm guessing it's the same here if you go to a football match and that. If you jump the fence and run on the field, something, something nasty is going to happen, either directly or indirectly. Indirectly, you're going to get fined. That's what happens if you jump on the rugby field back at home and during an international game especially. The other is you get a lifetime ban in some cases from ever being able to go to any of the matches. You try and buy a ticket, you put down your name to purchase that ticket, you get flagged and you're not allowed into the stadium. So here's little 14-year-old Charles Lane. He sees his heroes walking past him. He can't resist. He wants to throw everything he has to the wind he doesn't care about his parents. He doesn't care about his friends. He gives everything up. He jumps that fence and he beelines it straight to his favorite player, Sonny Bill Williams. Two feet from his hero, Charles gets slam tackled, blindsided from the side by a security guard. The question I propose to you guys this morning is, Why would you give up to receive what you believe to be great value? For Charles, it was that one opportunity to be and stand with the men that he saw as heroes. He didn't think of the repercussions. He didn't think of the cost. He threw all to the wind, and he went for it. So again... All is worthless compared to the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven. I would like to look at these uh, three verses in uh, the simple outline. Point one: the surpassing value of the kingdom. Underneath that, point two subpoints: so the surpassing of the value of the kingdom in what it is, aka what is the kingdom. Second subpoint, the surpassing value of the kingdom and its nature. And the second main point, our response to the surpassing value of the kingdom. Now, before I jump in, I'd like to do a little bit of housework. If, uh, if you've been reading through uh, your Gospels, you might have noticed a little bit of difference in terms used between Matthew and and the rest of the Gospels, so Mark Luke, and, Mark, Luke, and John. So you might have seen in Matthew, for example, which is the only exclusive place that Matthew uses this term, kingdom of heaven. Yet elsewhere, you'll see the term um, kingdom of God. So the question you'll have to, you really you should ask is, are these two points, these two terms the same thing? Or are they totally different? Do they mean something else? Well, my, my stance and belief at the moment um, is that both terms mean, have the same meaning. And that is the kingdom as a whole, whose ruler and owner is the one triune God. So the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom as a whole, whose ruler and owner is the one triune God. The kingdom of God is the kingdom as a whole whose ruler and owner is the one triune God. Why do I believe this is the case? Like I said, Matthew exclusively uses the term kingdom of heaven. However, kingdom of God is recorded in the parallel accounts um, with the parables that this term kingdom of heaven is used. So, for example, Mark and Luke, they use the term kingdom of God, even though Matthew uses the term kingdom and heaven, yet they're both addressing the same parable. So if you'd like to look that up, it's uh, found in Matthew 11, 11 to 12, for example, with Luke 7, 28. Um, And also Matthew 13, 11. Also, why I believe both terms are synonymous with themselves, are exactly the same, is because Jesus uses them both in one of his parables. So in Matthew 19, um, 23 to 24, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So even Jesus flips these two terms around. And now, there are those that would make a case that there is a significance over the two terms. But I think in our, in our everyday reading of the text, it's, it makes it easier to understand what's going on by saying, you know what, they're both the same term. If there's doubt, as always, context, context, context. If there's going to be any difference, it's usually spilled out within the context of what's being said. Secondly, before we jump in, I'm going to approach these two parables as one group. I'm not going to address the parable of the treasure, and then I'm going to talk about the parable of the pearl. Today what I'd like to do is address more Um, as one because they address the same subject again what's that subject that all is worthless compared to the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven and so though there's two different angles taken or that Jesus presents in regards to the man in the field and the merchant he still is covering the same um, overview or the same theme so with that Let's jump in. I have a question. What are these two parables of the hidden, of the hidden treasure and the pearl, uh, the pearl of great value is about? I'd like you guys to file that in the back of your mind. What is Jesus explaining here? If we actually read on, we know that Jesus asks his disciples, do you understand what I have just taught? And his disciples said yes. So my hope this morning is that we who are disciples of Christ will understand what Jesus is explaining in these two parables. So let's look at the main point, the first point, the surpassing value of the kingdom. So point A, the surpassing value of the kingdom and what it is. So really, the question we've got to ask, what is the kingdom of heaven? Again, if you guys would have a look at the text with me, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding that one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. What we first see when we look at these parables is that there's a great value in regards to the kingdom of heaven. It surpasses everything else. So why is that kingdom of heaven of great value? Well, first we see it um, with what it is. What is the kingdom? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis one one, and God saw that everything that He made He behold, and it was very good. And then there was evening and morning, the sixth day. Genesis one, uh, verse thirty one. What we see from the moment of creation all the way through to Gen, uh, sorry, moment of gen, creation all the way through to the returning of Christ, Genesis to Revelation. There is a theme where God has established his kingdom on earth upon which he dwells with his people. It's one of the misnomers out there in regards to the view of Christianity. Um, and that is that God is aloof. That he created this world and then he's just hanging out somewhere in the ethos, chilling. And we've all been left to find our way, and to work our way out in this life. A number of religions hold sort of this view. Islam, for example, the God that they worship, he is aloof, he is far off. Ultimately, for a Muslim to be right in the eyes of Allah, and I'll use the term Allah instead of God because they are two very different gods. They must work their way to please him. First, by keeping their five pillars, and second, by answering two specific questions upon death. And so when they die, an angel will come to them. Who is the one true God? Who is your prophet? And depending on how they answer that depends whether Allah, who is aloof, decides, you know what, I might actually make my presence known, and it might set you in a certain level of heaven. So even the concept of heaven is far off. It's aloof. So, for Islam, for example, what you have is a created earth, man on the earth, Allah, heaven. There's a separation. The true kingdom of heaven, though, created by the true God, as was revealed in our scriptures, is that God dwells with his people. is that God has created us so he can be with us. Simply put, the kingdom of heaven is God's established order whereby he sovereignly reigns and restores all his creation with the purpose of graciously saving and dwelling with his people. The accounts that we see in Genesis, Adam and Eve in a garden, in a specific place where God dwells with them. We see that there's communication between God and Adam and Eve. There is no separation. Now we know that because of the fall, because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, there is now separation. Yet, even though because of man's state of sin and being rejected by God, God still pursues man. He still pursues the people for himself. And he promised, even after the fall, after Adam and Eve had rebelled from God, after they tried to hide from God, that he would send a savior to redeem them. Pardon me. He himself would be the one to rescue them. And we see this picture throughout scripture. Just briefly on a side note, we have a tendency when we read our our Bible to, you know, pick up a book and start reading through the chapter. You know, we've got our reading plans and we're we're set to read, okay, I'm going to read half a chapter a day, I'm going to read a chapter a day, I'm going to read 10 chapters a day. But some of these reading plans sort of fragment the whole picture of the kingdom of God. They break it up. You're jumping all over the place like a flea on a hot plate and you don't really see the connection of God establishing his kingdom and rescuing his people. And that leads now on to, sorry, my second point. And that is the surpassing value of the kingdom and its nature again if you guys would like to look at me uh, look with me sorry um, at the text the kingdom of heaven is like a hidden treasure hidden in a field stop there jump down to verse 45 again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who upon finding that one pearl of great value stop there what Jesus explains to his disciples is that one of the reasons that the kingdom, um, sorry, the kingdom of heaven is of great value is because of the price paid for that kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Treasure doesn't naturally pick itself up, dig itself a hole, dive in, cover itself up, and wait for someone to try and find it. Someone has deliberately gone out of their way to take their life savings, put them in a big um, sort of clay cistern, roughly apparently they're about yay size and yay round. Dig away at the hard rocky soil over in the Middle East, drop this treasure into the ground and cover it up. The reason why their families did this was because there wasn't any banks at the day. Uh, during that time. So the safest, uh, the safest way you could protect your, your life savings was in the field that you owned, that no one else knew about, you would bury your treasure, and then when needed you would come, dig up the top, open the lid, grab what you needed, put it back down, cover it up. So there's a cost of time needed in burying this treasure. What we also see, though, in these, uh, in these parables is first, with uh, the man in the field, which by the way, I'm not going to look at specifically who is this man, who is this merchant, because in, in the discussion that Jesus has, this man is just, he's not important, as in personally who he is and what he, what he was up to. Now, we can give a little bit of insight if this man was in a field, there's a good chance he wasn't just roaming through the field, he was actually a farmer, okay? And we know that because uh, first that he found the treasure hidden in the field, okay? Treasure was usually buried pretty well, so he might have been turning the land at the time um, or doing some sort of work with shifting the soil that exposed the top um, of this cast full of treasure, We also know that this man is able to buy that field. Now, usually, if someone was working for someone else within, um, sorry, back 2,000 years ago, there was a couple of reasons. One, they were just working every day like we would work, two, they owed a debt to that person that they were working for. What we can gather from this parable is that this man didn't owe a debt to the person that he was working for because he's able to go <coughs> and purchase that field that he, was, um, that he was working in. Also, just quickly, I'm not going to jump into the, the whole language of buying the kingdom, purchasing the kingdom, because we can't buy the kingdom. We don't have the money to buy the kingdom. We don't have the worth to purchase the kingdom. The only way that we can buy the kingdom, if we're looking at this language within the parables here, and if we look at how the merchant is trading and selling, and then he, once he finds a pearl, he buys that pearl, is if we have received a gift card from God and we're able to use that card to purchase something. And so what we see in Scripture is none of us can come to Christ on our own merit. The only way we can is if God enables us. If he gives us his Holy Spirit. If he regenerates our heart, he opens our eyes. If he himself, who has paid for us, gives us his money, his worth, to us, so then we can also have that kingdom. So again, it has a price. The other lot price, too, is the person who buried the treasure. For someone, that life savings was lost. For the farmer to be in the field, plowing, digging it around and find the, finding the treasure, and then able to quickly cover it up and go and ask, The owner of that field, if he can buy it, would mean that that owner did not know that it was in there. Maybe that owner had purchased it off someone else. But either way, someone along the line lost their inheritance. Someone along the line lost their treasure. Someone along the line gave it up so someone else can receive it. We also see the uh, the um, sorry surpassing value of the kingdom in its nature in regards to its price when we look at the um, when we <coughs> sorry when we look at the merchant. Well, we see here we have a merchant who's in search of fine pearls. and oh, finding the one pearl of great value. Went and sold all that he had and bought it. Finding pearls. Or acquiring pearls 2,000 years ago wasn't an easy job, just like it's not now in our modern day. Someone, somewhere, had to dive into the ocean without any snorkeling gear, ply off um, off the seabed and the rock shelves um, these shellfish, bring them up, open these shellfish up, see if there's a pearl in there, if there is, bring it out, clean it, shine it, and then put it on the market for sale. Again, there's a cost in time. There's a cost in, in effort. It's also a risk of a loss of life. A lot of these pearl divers drowned. A lot of them were also, after they had found their um, found their shellfish, some of them were robbed. So even before they could get to the point of opening up these shellfish, the shellfish could have been taken from them and all their effort would have been for naught. So there's a cost in collecting these pearls. It's also a cost of life to the shellfish. For the merchant though, for the value of that pearl, there's a cost of time and effort for himself. He has to research the pearl, he has to find out what the, the market value is. Once he's found his pearls and he's found someone that wants to buy, he has to haggle and try and bargain this guy down so he can get a, be- a great deal. So, there's a, with the in regards to the merchant, there's a cost in his time. And also, the merchants were travelers. They're away from their families if they had families. They gave to an extent for the sake of worth and for the sake of their riches, some of them would put their families aside. So again, there's there was a cost. So there was a price for the surpassing value of the kingdom and its nature. What, though, is the true? Uh, sorry, I'll say that again. What is of the greatest value, and what was the greatest cost? In regards to the kingdom of heaven. We only have one treasure. As Christians, we only have one treasure. Now, I understand that some of you guys here this morning are probably still trying to work this out. Some of you guys turn up this morning, you come in and out, you go to your home groups or care groups, you come in on a Sunday, you're hearing the preaching of the word, You've been encouraged in home groups and told these wonderful great truths of the one true treasure of Jesus Christ. And some of you are yet to see it. We'll talk about that um, in a moment. But that treasure is Christ. And the price he paid is his life. And even before he did that, it's the second in the Trinity. He was sent by the Father, the first in the Trinity, to assume flesh, to walk on this earth, not to make our lives better, not to give us grand wealth, but that so those who are dead may live. And for those who claim to be alive, would be made dead. Christ is our surpassing treasure. And the surpassing value of the kingdom and nat- its nature is found in his price, in his life that he laid down for us. Ephesians 1, seven, In him we have a dem- redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace. Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he, that's the Father, made him to be sin, that is Jesus Christ who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Next point that we see within, um, within these parables is the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven in regards to its place. If we look at our parables again, what, what do we see? We see that there is a field that a man is working in, and then there's a merchant in search of fine pearls. The man is working in a field for a specific perso- uh, purpose he's working for his so he may sustain his own life and the life of his family. he's also tilling and working a field that would produce food, clothing and how um, and Depending on the field, it could have been wood for houses. He's working in a place that's seasonal, that changes. That at one point period in the year or one time in the year produces a certain fruit. At another time of the year, the field could have been used for something else. As I said earlier, the field itself from working in the field or what the place of this field it sustains protects and heals what is produced from this field would go out into the community and again in regards to clothing medicine food this field is also local it's not anywhere else we see a local view of the kingdom of heaven and a local um Sorry, the words just skip me. Sorry about that. Local area. What about the, the kingdom is like a merchant? Well, the merchant, he's a traveler. He is going around the world. He is, he is seeking these pearls all over the place. And with these with pearls comes um, growth. What we see is through trade, um, sorry, through trade and the connection from, because of trade, towns and cities would grow. There's a, there's a saying that it wasn't the, the Roman military that conquered the world for Rome, but it was the merchants who led the way. So there was a great blessing even within this merchant doing his works, working on, on selling and trading. We have a picture here of what? Commerce. If a country does not produce and sell, a country dies. But a country that does produce and trade is one that grows. And so we also see that this view of the value of the kingdom is in its place because it's global. So how do we see that then, though, Um, for us? Well the kingdom's worth is seen both in local and global setting. How? Well first let's look locally. Kingdom of heaven locally is within us. If we are Christians we have the holy spirit dwelling within us. It is local in regards to our families. So the kingdom of heaven is not just dwelling within us, but it's also seen within our families. It might not be seen very clearly. There might be days where it's just super bright. Then other days we're like, oh, where's God? But it's locally within our families. It's locally within our church, spreading out. It's locally within our community, the gathering of believers. So not just here this morning but also in the number of other churches that are around Greenville are all gathering together to come and worship and praise the one true God who saved them. But then it's also globally. Unlike what the Mormons teach or what Joseph Smith taught, the kingdom of heaven is not America. The kingdom of heaven is international. Our our brothers and sisters over in New Zealand have already gathered praised and worshipped God. Others in Russia and China will likewise do the same. What we see is that Christ sent his disciples to hang out in just Jerusalem. No. He sent them from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, uh, Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the world. If we have a look again, sorry, at our, at our passage here, our three passages, we see that the kingdom of heaven has value because of its purpose. There is a purpose for the farmer being in that field. There is a purpose for that merchant out buying and selling and trading his pearls. The farmer, he is working, he's taking care of the field. Again, he wants to sustain himself and his family. And what's interesting is, while he's in that field and he finds that treasure, he then sets a purpose to take hold of that treasure, to own that treasure. The value of the kingdom of heaven is that it has a purpose. And that purpose is Christ to gather his people to himself that who is the great treasure, that who is hidden for all of us at some point. None of us just wake up just going, you know what, I want to truly follow God. There is some point in our lives where there all of a sudden the Holy Spirit illuminates that truth to us and we understand what that kingdom is and our need to pursue and follow Christ. Now, for some of you kids out here, my guys in the truth seekers class, some of you may be still looking and waiting to discover that treasure. Others, you're probably looking back going, you know what? I actually can't remember a time when I wasn't looking for this treasure. I I knew it. But even in that point, even as a small child, you may not remember or know when God called you to himself. But you just know. And we see that example then in regards to the merchant. Think of the disciples just briefly. Well within the twelve disciples we've got a number of, we've got John and Andrew, right? What is described in John, book of John, is um, yep, they were disciples of John the Baptist. They were told about the kingdom and they were seeking the kingdom. But then we have an example like Matthew, who's a stooge. He's a tax collector. He's a Jew selling out for the Romans. And he's one of the most least liked people in that region. And what's he doing? He's sitting at his booth, counting his wares, trying to work out, okay, how much have I stolen of someone? How much of this can I pocket? How much can I get away with giving to Rome without myself getting in trouble? And then along comes Jesus. Points to Matthew. Okay, I'm not sure if he pointed to Matthew. But Jesus calls Matthew to what? Drop everything and follow him. So, the value of the kingdom is found in its purpose. And again, that's God's active work in his kingdom of saving his people, of bringing together a people who would be part of his family. To take that people that he has gathered who are part of his family and make them back into the image of God. Think about what happened in in, uh, Genesis. What we read there is Adam was made in the image of God. And we use this language that man is created in God's image. But what we see in Romans five though is that image is broken. You are either of Adam or you are of Christ. If you are of Adam, though you are made in the image of Adam, uh, God, sorry, you now carry that image of Adam. You are still in your sinful state. You are still separated from God, and you still rightly deserve his wrath and judgment, either when you die and face him upon death or when Christ returns. But as Christians, Christ makes us and works within us through the Holy Spirit. Fancy word here, sanctifies us, molds us back into the image of God. He who starts a good work in his children will finish it. There will be a day where we will be gathered together upon the returning of Christ, where we will be resurrected in our new bodies, and we will be like him. It's interesting. What does Jesus say in, in, um, in John? And elsewhere in the Gospels. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now again, Jesus wasn't saying, see how I look? My hands and my beard. That's exactly how the Father in heaven looks. No. What he's talking about is his image of being made, of being as fully man, fully God, holy, righteous, and having a perfect understanding or knowledge of God's law. So as Christians, as Christ is restoring us to himself, we have a, it is now done um, aspect but a not yet aspect. We are holy as Christ is holy. We are righteous as Christ is righteous. And we have his knowledge of understanding the want and need to love and follow his law. Now that in our day-to-day lives is seen on and off. We all struggle with our sin. Every single one of us has something that we're dwelling with right now that either... It is a battle of the flesh in two ways. It has such a hold that we can't let it go even though we try and we're calling and falling upon the Lord to release us from that or we don't want to let it go. We treat it like a treasure. We look at our sinful state and we think, you know what? I'll trade it off with lesser or greater sins. So, the value of the kingdom is found in its purpose, and that is that Christ came to save and seek that which is lost. I think Malachi 3, uh, verse 2 to 4, is a wonderful verse. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will pur- purify sorry, the sons of Levi and reform them like the gold and silver, so that they may be presented to the Lord um, offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, um, as it was in the days of old and as in the former years. This verse is an encouragement for us. As Malachi was trying to encourage um, his people once they went back into Jerusalem after being released of King Cyrus, God has a purpose. And that purpose is to refine us and to make us into his image. If we think about, again, the pearls, they had to be cleaned. They had to be cut out of the shellfish. They, they were worked at. They, they weren't just this sand with a whole lot of shellfish, hardened shellfish spit, and then presented like, here it is, this is $5,000. Again, they were polished, they were buffed, they were made presentable. For even the treasurer um, that was found in the field, it would have been gold coins. It could have been expensive oils. But there was a processing, there was a a work needed to produce those gold coins. There was a work needed to produce that fine, expensive oil. And so, even in regards to the treasure and the pearl, the value isn't found in just what it is, but the value is also found within the work of producing what it is. Fourthly, the value of the kingdom is found in its place, uh, in its peace. If we have a look again at the verse, uh, our um, three verses here, what do we see? We see, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. The farmer, once he discovered that treasure, is absolutely ecstatic. He knows what it is. He knows that if I can purchase this field and own this treasure, that's it. I'm set for life. He has peace about making that decision. He immediately goes to find the owner of the field and to work out whether he can purchase and own that field. What we read is here, he does what? He sells all that he has so he can purchase that field. The farmer didn't just Trot over to his bank account and go, I'm just going to take this amount of money, purchase the field, and this treasure will be added to what I've already got. He gives up everything. He sells everything he has. He risks it all. He goes to the owner of the field. He drops his wealth in front of that owner and says, This is all I have. Can I buy that field? Likewise, we see the same with a merchant. Now, though it's not directly said that in his joy, the merchant went, sold all that he had and purchased the pearl of great value, Jesus does link the two parables together with the word again. And so what he's doing is he's making a comparison of how similar these two parables are. And so we can guess through um, through an inference here, since we don't read of this merchant hesitating, That he goes, he sells all that he has, so he can purchase that one great pearl. And he has total peace about it. Think about it. The merchant went and sold all that he had and bought it, the great pearl. It wouldn't have just been his, his private wealth. For this merchant to sell all that he had, he would have had to sell all his pearls he would have had to sell all his stock. If you're someone that owns a business, to sell everything you have would mean to give up your occupation, to give up your source of income, to lay everything down and risk it for what? This one pearl of great value. This is exactly what the merchant did. And he had peace about it. He threw it all away for that pearl. As God's people... The surpassing value in God's kingdom is that we have peace with one another, but ultimately that we have peace with God. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, we are no longer his enemies, we're no longer hostile in mind. As uh, Colossians 1 says, he has gathered us to himself as his children, as we see in First John. He himself made peace with us before we even thought about making peace with God. While we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. The value of that kingdom is also seen then in the love and grace of God to make peace with us who are his enemies. Would you guys think about that for a moment? We had communion this morning. One of the things that Paul says regarding communion is: before you take that, before we take the Lord's supper, first we want to check ourselves, and see if we have any open and known sin, so to speak, or harbour anything towards someone else. Now I know we get into the routine of, it's the first Sunday, or the last Sunday of the month, sorry, and we take the elements of the breading grape juice but the question is do we first seek peace first within ourselves and God that if we have any harbored sin that we know that Christ is true and that he has redeemed and saved us and if we confess of our sin he will forgive us and second do we have any malice towards one of our brothers and sisters one of the two greatest commandments, love God, and likewise, love our neighbor. And what we see in the surpassing value of a kingdom is just that. Because God has loved us and made peace with us, we have peace with him, and we have peace with one another. This leads to our final point. And that is point two, our response to the surpassing value of the kingdom. How are we going to respond? And what we've learned about the kingdom and its value and its elements, how are we going to respond? Again, when Jesus asked his disciples, do you understand these things? His disciples said yes. They understand what Jesus was saying. To have the kingdom of heaven, you must give up everything. What about you guys this morning? You you willing to give up everything for the kingdom? Is there anything you're holding back? Now, is Jesus literally saying you must? Give up everything to the point of just being naked on the streets for the kingdom of God. No. What we see first and foremost within these two parables, and I think the key point here is with a farmer, in his joy, there is a heart of wanting to give up all for the kingdom. There is an understanding of what that kingdom is, There is a will behind that understanding and there's there's an affection to follow through with that understanding. We see this in the disciples. They themselves again said, yes, we understand. They gave up everything for the kingdom of heaven. They gave up everything to follow Christ. Christ. And even at the time when Christ was crucified and buried in the tomb, and they were, in a way, they were lost. They knew Christ was the Messiah. He had come. He had now been cut down. And they didn't know what was going on until Jesus appears first to the woman and then to them and sends his Holy Spirit upon them that they finally see and understand and what was veiled and hidden of the kingdom of heaven is now exposed and open in the form of the growth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the result being his church. They were willing to lay down their lives for persecution, under persecution and they knew the result and the great blessing of it. The surpassing peace, knowledge knowing, that they will spend eternity with Christ, that the dwelling place for God is with man, as we read in Revelation 21. What then does it look like for someone who doesn't sacrifice all? Well, first, Jesus says, you must pick up your cross and follow me. Sorry, coming back to needing to sacrifice all. When he says, you must pick up your cross and follow me, we have a tendency to think, okay, cool, yeah, I'll just put, a, put aside some stuff and follow Jesus. Maybe we look at our little pendants, Maybe we look at our tattoos, look at the cross behind us here. But for Jesus' disciples, when he told that, when he said that, it meant a number of things. first, They were alienated from the governing body. If you lived in Rome and you're a Roman citizen, you didn't get crucified. However, if you did a crime worthy of crucifixion, you were declared to no longer be part of the kingdom of Rome. You were a traitor. And as someone who is no longer part of the kingdom of Rome, then you could be punished justly, through the, death of the cross, uh, through the work of the cross. So for the disciples, it meant, when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, I'm alienated, I'm a criminal. And for a Jew, that meant, if I'm gonna hang from a tree, I'm cursed. Yet, with that mindset, Jesus is the one who ends up on that cross. You pick up the cross and follow Jesus, And you've got nowhere to go because there is a cross and there is the man hanging on that cross. All for the sake of us. There's one example I'd like to quickly look at. I'm almost done here. There's one disciple who heard these things. He heard that he must give up all for the sake of the kingdom. He walked with Christ. He heard of the kingdom. He saw the kingdom. Yet, all he received through not giving up all for the kingdom was a cost of uh, was thirty pieces of silver and six foot of rope. If we don't have that heart of, our, of repentance and faith in Christ. if we are trying to look at Jesus and something else, there is no peace, there is no blessing. there will only ever be destruction and death. And I think this is what God would like to see uh, God would like us to see this morning through the passage that the kingdom of heaven, that Christ is worth everything. We have no idea how long we're going to live. None of us chose when we'd be born, just as none of us will rightly choose when we die. It's at God's appointed time where it's destined for man to die once and then be judged. How, will you th- how do you think you'll stand before the holy and just God in your state of sin. Unless you are found in his righteousness, you won't stand. However, as we've just seen, the purpose of the kingdom of heaven is for God to rescue his people through the sending of his son calls us all to repent and trust in Christ alone for our salvation, to embrace that kingdom through trusting in Jesus alone, through realizing who we are as sinners in need of a savior and living a life of consistently wanting and checking ourselves in our state of God, uh, in Christ, God. Practically, that can mean In some cases, we may need to give up some of our earthly materials. Maybe we need to give up our job. Maybe there's something personal that we're holding on to that we need to give up. Maybe it might mean, after saying something stupid, which I learned this week, sucking it up going to that person that you're wronged, even though they might not have even known about it, confessing your sin to them and apologizing. Whether they accept it or not, it doesn't matter. To give up all for the kingdom means we must die to ourselves. It was pride that brought sin into this world. And yet Christ walked on this earth to show his prideful creation true humility. So what happened to Charlie? Well, like I said, two feet away from his hero, he got blindsided and slam tackled by the security guard. But that's not the end of the story. Upon seeing the security guard, who's roughly three times the size of this poor little 14-year-old kid, get slam-tackled, Sonny Bill Williams and Steve Hansen, the coach of the All Blacks, quickly rush in, push the security guard off, and pick up Charlie. One of the other All Blacks comes in from behind the scenes, and he takes his beanie, one of his, part of his uniform, and sticks it upon this little 14-year-old's head. Charlie gave up all so he could be with his heroes. And here he is now in front of thousands upon thousands of people, walking within the presence of those men who he looked up to and gave everything for. Sonny Bill walks with him for a bit with his arm around little Charlie. He takes him back to the fence in front of his parents where Charlie jumped. But before he lifts him up and puts him over that fence, Sonny Bill takes his hands around his neck, he lifts off his gold medal that he's just won, he places it around Charlie, and then puts him back with his parents. Charlie risked it all to be with his heroes, and yet what he received from doing that was far greater than he would ever imagine and something that he would never forget. May we remember and trust and look upon Christ our Saviour, who has taken us in his arms, the one who laid down his life for us and who says, give up all for me because though you may not see it now, there is a consistent flow and love and blessing from that act. You will receive his reward. Him dwelling with us forever. Let's pray. Father, again, we just thank you so much for the sending of your Son. For us here that we have peace and confidence, knowing of the work of Jesus and our trust and reliance in you alone. We thank you. For those of us out here today that don't know that, we ask that you would give clarity of mind and heart, that you would give them the gift the saving gra- of saving grace and repentance, and that they would see the value of your kingdom, that they would turn to you for life. Thank you, Father. Jesus' name. Amen. What's that? Oh. You can go home and pick up the kids.